This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, Russia invaded Ukraine on February the 24th. Vladimir Putin called it a special military operation and continues to do so. On Thursday, it will be nine months since this invasion began. And the Ukrainian Defense Ministry published figures yesterday claiming in that, those nine months, 84,210 Rus- Russian soldiers had been eliminated and 437 Ukrainian children have been killed as a result of Putin's invasion. Of course, those figures can't be entirely verified, but it gives you an idea of the scale of this dreadful, dreadful war. And uh, yesterday, over the weekend, in fact, in Zaporizhia, where Europe's largest nuclear power station is, it came under fire. The Russians accused the Ukrainians of doing it. The Ukrainians accused the Russians of doing it. But certainly in the last three or four weeks, and particularly in the last two weeks, certain things have crystallized about the battlefield and how the war is going. And it's a pleasure now to welcome to the stand Tom Clonan, Senator Tom Clonan, the Senator of Trinity College, former soldier, officer commanding Irish troops in the UN interim force in the Lebanon. And he was a witness to Operation Grapes of Wrath, which was an Israeli operation which culminated in the massacre of refugees in the village of Kaina in April 1996. Tom also researched the treatment of female soldiers in the Defence Forces and uncovered abuse for which he was commended. And now, of course, he's a senator, which is a reassuring fact that someone like Tom can get into the Senate and have an impact on our lives. Tom, thank you very much for joining us today. It's hard to really grasp that we're nine months into this war, the worst we've had since 1945 in Europe. And also, to go back to February 24th, there had been a big build-up of 150,000 Russian troops on the borders of Ukraine. Putin insisting he had no intention of invading the American intelligence contradicting that, and it was expected. Um, or can you confirm 
for me and our listeners that it was expected that they would take Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, and it would all be over in three or four days or a week. Uh, thanks for the, the very kind introduction, Eamon. Yes, um, the Russians and Putin certainly completely underestimated the, the situation on a number of levels. So on an intelligence level, given the numbers of troops that Russia committed, you know, as you said, there are about 150, maybe 170,000 troops to invade a population, uh, a country with a population of 40 million people, uh, a, a very, very small force, which they then split into three. Uh, with one axis of advance coming from Belarus down towards Kiev, uh, striking at the heart of the Zelensky regime, and the other two in the Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts. And all three uh, failed. The, the, the one spectacularly in Kiev, you know, we had almost a month of uh, images, t- TV footage going all around the world of of the Russian army just stalled in a big extended column that was constantly being ambushed by a very highly mobile and nimble Ukrainian defense. So the, the first intelligence misstep on, on Vladimir Putin's part himself, a former intelligence officer who, who worked in the, G- yes. in the former GDR, was to underestimate the regime uh, and the support that Ukrainians would give Zelensky. Uh, the second uh, intelligence misstep was the capacity and the willingness and the motivation of the Ukrainian military to fight. And and they have shown over the last nine months that they have actually evolved in their capacity to mount kinetic offensive operations against uh, the Russians and have pushed them back, uh, have, have liberated Kherson in the last number of weeks and have liberated large parts of Kharkiv and are now advancing on uh, areas in Luhansk that were originally taken in the uh, original uh, Russian offensive. The third intelligence misstep was the cohesion of NATO. I think post-Brexit and post the Trump administration, Putin probably felt that um, NATO would not cohere and provide the kind of support, logistics, ammunition, national technical means, uh, surveillance equipment like drones and so on, weapons like the high mobility artillery rocket system, the HIMARS, and also the, the cohesion of the, the European Union. So th- this is this has not gone well. We're, we're at month nine this week of the invasion of Ukraine and the, the Russians are stalled. And as you, you quoted that figure that the Ukrainians uh, yes. claim uh, over 80,000 Russian troops, as they say, eliminated. So that means either killed seriously injured or, or, or taken prisoner. I think with all of those figures, you know, we have to treat them with a certain amount of caution, but there is a consistency. If you if you take the Russian claim of, of deaths and the, and the Ukrainian or Western claims and, and meet them somewhere in the middle, you're probably getting at where the truth lies. So based on Russia's confirmed uh, death toll of in and around 10 or 12,000 and the claim of 80,000, you're probably looking at 40 or 50,000 dead. Russian yes. dead out of an original invasion force of um of 150 180,000 so that means you know one in three uh, killed in action that's their catastrophic losses and in a normal situation that that that, that level that casualty level would would spell defeat for uh, an army and there's also you know associated with deaths there's you know, like there's a mathematical relationship then, what they call the exchange ratio of the numbers of people seriously injured. 
Yes. So if, if, if 40 or 50,000 Russian troops have been killed, then multiples of that have been very, very seriously injured. So if you're a, a recently partially mobilized Russian soldier in your 40s, you know, coming from some yes. part of the Russian Federation being sent into Ukraine, you've, you've got a, you know, a, you, your chances of surviving are, you know, less than one in three. It's, it's an extraordinarily bleak situation that Russian troops find themselves in. Uh, poorly equipped, poorly trained, uh, fighting against a very, very mobile, well-supplied and Ukrainian military that has, whose motivation to fight is accelerated by recent victories and accelerated by the fact that they're fighting for their homeland. 437 children killed by Putin and his cronies. It's, uh, it, 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 this looks like a war that, that will, will, will grind on, will continue. Now, Tom, one of the most appalling things that we've learned is that tens of thousands of children, men and women uh, have been uh, kidnapped by the Russians and sent to remote parts of Russia, like Siberia or whatever, sometimes children on their own. This is, I'm not sure how much you can elaborate on what we we know, but it's, and it's hardly ever commented on that tens of thousands of people have been kidnapped and dispersed around remote parts of Russia. This is a particularly cruel and extraordinary intervention with civilian people. Well, it's a form of ethnic cleansing. And yes. we saw that in the conflict in the former Yugoslavia uh, in during the 1990s when you had ethnic groups like Serbs, Croats um, or Muslims or Bosniaks, as they're referred to, uh, being being moved. In many cases, uh, thousands and thousands of men and boys being being murdered and buried in mass graves. So this is um, a similar dynamic in in that you know very large numbers of of Ukrainian civilians have been forcibly removed from occupied parts of the of the Donbass, from Luhansk, from Donetsk Oblast, from uh, around Kharkiv. And some of them have managed to get back across the border through Finland. There is actually a network of supporters in, in within the Russian Federation who are helping to repatriate some of these individuals. So we're getting eyewitness accounts and, and first-hand testimony of the process of, of that forced um, expatriation to, right. to Russia. And that's something that, you know, it, it, it is also... Um, a war crime to to forcibly remove uh, the civilian population in that way. Like the Russians are obliged under Geneva Conventions and the laws of armed conflict to provide safe corridors for them to uh, leave the fighting, but that those corridors should be towards Ukraine and they shouldn't be forcibly expatriated in you know towards the enemy. That's completely and utterly uh, outside of the outside of the law, um, and. You know, th th this, this pattern, you know, trying, this, this idea that they might, that Putin wants to Russify, um, the occupied part of Ukraine is also reinforced then by that plebiscite or that series of plebiscites that took place yes. to declare the occupied areas in four yes. oblasts to be, to be Russian soil. So it's all part of that, that same dynamic and that, that same fixation that, uh, Vladimir Putin has with Ukraine as part of the of, of the greater Russia that it's it's part of the Rodina the motherland and effectively though um, he would see it as the gateway 
across the North European plain to Russia and vice versa, the gateway from Russia into, into Central and, and Eastern Europe. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details burrow's furniture is built for the way you live from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating they always have their customers in mind their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you and with burrow you always get fast free shipping Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Let me ask you about um, the latest developments. Um, first of all, General uh, Sarovakan, who was, is known as General Armageddon, he came into this conflict and took over command of the Russian army about a month ago. Now, he was the man who oversaw Russia's demolition of S Syria, of parts of Syria. Aleppo is the most shocking and sickening example of that, where hospitals, doctors, at schools and everybody were targeted. He also was involved with the Russians in Chechnya, where he also leveled parts of uh, Grozny, for example, which is a big city in Chechnya. Two questions. What we're seeing now in the latest is attacks on the infrastructure, uh, the water supply in Ukraine, the energy supplies 
it appears that what Putin plans for this period and for the foreseeable future is to make this winter hell for Ukraine. And when one thinks back to what Sorovakin did in Aleppo, for example, two questions. One, Tom, why did they wait so long to do this? And is it a sign of a reflection of the fact that they've lost over 8,000 troops in, in what might be called conventional warfare? Or is it a sign of Putin's weakness and, and his inability to get an army that can win in Ukraine on the ground in places like Kherson? But also, it seems, uh, in the Donbass, they're reclaiming territory there. And he has talked about the Crimea Peninsula which is really going back pre-2014, when yeah. the Donbass and Crimea in 2008, I think. Yes. The the, the appointment of Sorovakin is a, is a desperate measure. Um, Sorovakin, as you said, known as General Armageddon, oversaw the... Uh, what was essentially an air, an air and missile campaign in Syria. So the Russians didn't do much by way of ground combat in Syria. That that ground combat, the urban fighting, yes. was carried out by President Assad's troops, the Syrian Arab National Army, or SANA. They, they did the fighting, and the Russians provided air support with the assistance of the Iranians uh, and an air base that they set up just on the on the Mediterranean coast, on the on the, the, the border between Syria and uh, and Turkey. Now, so his appointment as overall commander at this juncture shows that after the sackings of, of dozens and dozens of generals by Putin, that their ground commanders, their field commanders have been unable to mount successful conventional military operations. So they've now resorted to a very explicit campaign of, of terrorism and they're targeting the civilian population this week or rather last week we had massed missile attacks throughout uh, Ukraine, targeting cities like Lviv, Kiev, um, hitting apartment blocks, hitting, uh, as you said, infrastructure. They're all crimes under the Geneva Conventions. You're forbidden to attack civilian objects or, yes. or even military targets that are in amongst the civilian population. Uh, you can't legitimately strike those, th those targets. So Putin and his and, and his general staff have realized that they can't change the facts on the ground uh, by conventional military means. And we, we can talk about precisely what's happening at the moment shortly. So they have engaged in this kind of a blitz on on the Ukraine and, and using, as they did in Syria and, as you pointed out, in Chechnya and Grozny, using the civilian population as a target itself. Yes. And it really, that speaks to their failure on, on the ground. And countries that bomb cities in that way and um, if you think back to the you know it reminds me a little bit of the the v1 and the v2 bombing campaign at the end of world war ii where the germans you know unleashed what they call these uh, wunderwaffens or wonder weapons against the you know they're symptomatic of of a regime that's lost contact with reality and and, and can't legitimately uh fight using conventional means on the ground and so at the moment you know a real turning point was achieved by the Ukrainians in the liberation of Kherson, because the Ukrainian campaign against Kherson was a full frontal assault on heavily defended Russian positions. The Russians were dug in 
to Kherson because it was the first uh, regional capital that they took back in February. Yes. They had defence in depth also. The city was very well supplied by the Russians. And through a campaign of uh, artillery, uh, infantry, armour, the Ukrainians dislodged them from Kherson. First of all, they broke their supply lines incrementally, gradually, cut them off, and then forced the Russians out. So that was unlike, the, if you recall, the in September, the, the lightning assault that took place uh, in the Kharkiv province, where they went right down and retook some major uh, uh, towns in, you know, south, south and east of Kharkiv. That was mounted with surprise. Uh, it was done using a major deception plan. They got a number of brigades right in behind the Russian lines and forced them to route right over to um, the Oskil River. So there wasn't a counterattack by the Russians. It wasn't a fighting withdrawal. They literally ran for the hills. But the assault at Kherson was completely different. And it shows us that in every element of the field army, artillery, uh, dismounted infantry, armour, tanks, that the Ukrainians, if if you if you get into a pitched battle, the Ukrainians can prevail against yes. the odds. So that that is very disturbing for the Russian general staff. And if anyone looks at a map of Kherson, <clears throat> if the if the Ukrainians can break out of Kherson and get across the Dnieper River, and if they take Kherson Oblast, if they retake it, that will cut off Crimea and it'll sever. Um, Putin's land corridor from Russia proper down to the Crimean Peninsula. So that is something that the Russians will be uh, very, very conscious of. And so all of the reports we're getting now are to the effect that the Russians are now in a position of trying to dig in defensive positions um, east of the Dnipro River um, to try and prevent a breakout by the Ukrainians from Kherson. But as we know, if the Ukrainians are sufficiently supplied if they have the numbers and if they have the desire to do they can do it because they've already effectively beaten the Russians on the ground in Kherson so they can repeat that um, at the moment the Russians are fighting a desperate attempt just north of that in Donetsk um, to, to take the city of Bakhmut and the reason why they're doing they're throwing everything they have at that at the moment is to try and prevent a link up between the Ukrainian forces that are coming from the north through Luhansk province, linking up with their with their axis of advance down in the south, which would have the effect of splitting um, the, the the Russian invasion forces in two. And again, that's the the old classic concept of divide and conquer. So the Russians they're on the back foot, um, despite this offensive at Bakhmut, and the Ukrainians are now approaching um, a strategically very important town, Svatove. Uh, in in the Luhansk uh, province, and there's some very interesting reports coming out uh, from that area. So it would seem that the Russians that they're encountering are it's a mix of some of what's left of their experienced combat troops who are exhausted, and they're they're really only remnants. It's a mix of those and um, newly arriving mobilized reservists who are very poor, very poorly equipped. Yes, and uh, probably trained as well. There were 300,000 conscripts. Uh, I mean, they were pulling people off the streets not so long ago, and I'm talking about a few weeks ago. And, mm. of course, young men uh, and men of conscription age were fleeing 
Russia, and many, uh, hundreds of thousands, we understand, have actually fled uh, Russia. Let me ask you about the supply of, or what's possible in terms of defending yourself against this kind of shelling that we're seeing that's taking out water, energy supplies, electricity, and all of that. 40% in one night in the capital city, Kiev. Can you defend that? Has the West got the, uh, can you have air cover to defend against that? And is the West supplying that? The Americans, for example, I know the Americans and Biden made a renewed commitment last week for billions of dollars, uh, eye-watering sums. And there are Republicans now in this new Congress where they have a small majority who are questioning uh, the commitment to Ukraine. Mm. But can they... Sorry, go ahead, Tom. Yeah, so in relation to those missile attacks, uh, 85 cruise missiles and um, Iranian, what they call these suicide drones, in, in one night last week... Uh, the Iranian drones that are have been supplied are quite primitive. They they fly at a fairly low speed, and they can be intercepted and taken taken out by um, air defense con- convention fairly conventional air defense measures. And um, the more sophisticated anti missile missile systems, like the the ones yes. that the Israelis have, the Iron Dome system, and there are other they're referred to as flycatcher systems. And uh, the Ukrainians have some of those already. Uh, and they are being supplied with with more, but the problem is it's such a massive country. You know, Ukraine is. Yes. I think it's you know it's territorially it's, it's the vast. second biggest country in Europe. Yeah, in, so in terms of landmass, I understand it, 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 it's impossible to provide that uniform protection. But the despite that damage that's been done to the energy and uh, water systems, you know that's not going to defeat. Um, the, the Ukrainians, because unlike the Syrians, the Ukrainians have support, you know, massive support from their neighbors. I mean, we're, we're, we, uh, as, as we speak, you know, I think we have in, you know, north of 60,000 Ukrainian refugees here in Ireland. So they've yes. got the whole of Europe to support them. And it is going to be very bleak and there will be casualties to the cold. It's, it's, as we speak, it's snowing in Kiev. It started to snow. You know, the win- winter is setting in. But the, uh, the, 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 the Russians don't have a limitless supply of these, uh, missiles. It's, it has actually been reported that in some cases they've been using, uh, air to air missiles in, in that role, you know, using them as yes. a direct fire missile at, you know, letting it go on a bearing and a trajectory firing it willy nilly at, at Ukrainian cities. This is, you know, end game really for for that kind of a of a strategy, and on the ground, like there's been some very interesting reports in the defence of Svatove, uh, which is in the Luhansk area. That is a very vulnerable uh, operational flank for the Russians, and there have been reports that the the artillery, and if you recall, a couple of months ago, it, it, there was a conversation about um, the the Russians had ten times the artillery resources that the Ukrainians had. But yes. at the moment, the, the Russians, the, the, the newly, the replenishment units are not able to use the handheld computer equipment to uh, adjust fire onto Ukrainian targets. And they're, what they're doing is it's called open sight firing. So the Russians are actually using um, an adjusting gun 
to adjust onto targets, which is very time consuming, is very expensive. Um, and they're using uh, the infantry to, you know, with binoculars and compasses to report back where the rounds are landing. And that gives the Ukrainians a number of advantages. It gives them the opportunity to take evasive action when these adjusting rounds come in before the Russians can bracket onto the target. It's a waste of ammunition on the Russians' part, but also it reveals where the Russian batteries are and they're being taken out in very quick um, uh, counter-battery fire. So they seem to be breaking down. The, the advantages that the Russians had in terms of sheer numbers, um, they're losing that advantage uh, as a consequence of just poor military organization, um, low morale, they're basically in disarray in the field. So this war, I think, will continue into 2023. But already, this this over the weekend, we had General Mark Milley. He's the chair of the yes. U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff. He, I think he shocked people in Washington at the U.S. Senate Defense uh, Committee hearings when he said, it's time now for Russia to come to the table. And, and let's negotiate a settlement here because what he can see is that this grinding... Mark Milley, I should just tell our listeners if they wouldn't perhaps know, was one of the generals who resisted Trump and warned about Trump and was watching Trump. He was what people hoped. He was one of those people who would be the adult in the room if Trump ever got ideas about nuclear buttons. And ironically, actually, um, he, he wasn't the front runner for that position as no. chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, but apparently Trump liked the, the look of him. Yeah. <laughs> and so to everybody's surprise, you know, because he's a big, broad-shouldered, kind of chiseled, featured, kind of like yes. out of central casting in Hollywood, but come at the hour, come at the man, he certainly, um, as you say, called out the attempt to politicize the US military, and yes. particularly around the events of Capitol Hill, and was very, was very clear in his commitment to the separation of you know, the powers, separation yes. of powers, but that the US military would never be used as a political instrument and would always be used to defend the, the institutions of the United States. But he he's one of, and it's believed that Biden and his advisors share this view that, you know, we need to put as much effort into bringing this war to an end as we do in supplying Ukraine with the technology and the weapons and the equipment to to push the Russians back. So as as we speak, I mean, the, the Russians in Luhansk and Donetsk have moved east of the Oskil River. Now, they were, that was as a result of a route. They were actually, they, they, they ran east of the Oskil River. And they're now moving, they're, they're now confined to the eastern bank of the Dnieper River down south. They're digging in, hoping that they can hold on by their, by their, by their fingernails for the winter. But I mean, even if Russia does get 300,000 of these partially mobilized troops to Ukraine in the spring, I don't think that that's going to make the difference on the ground that will change the facts on the ground, given their, you know, if you're a Russian reservist who's been mobilized, you know, you face, a, a, it, the, you're, going to, you're going to get killed or seriously injured. Your chances of survival are very low and your equipment is poor. Two final questions, Tom, and we're very grateful to you for giving us your time. Um, one is the idea of negotiated end to the war. Is it possible that President Zelensky, who has been an inspired leader, I think people mostly agree, might not want to settle 
Uh, he has said on a number of occasions they want everything back, including the Donbass and Crimea, the lot. Is it possible that he will resist if Americans and the Europeans and NATO, in fact, say, look, we're supporting you, but you need to settle and negotiate? That's one question. Second question is, um, and it may not be appropriate to ask you, but a lot of Russian top Russian generals uh, and officers are falling out of windows, committing suicide and disappearing. Is there bound to be on Putin the kind of pressure that he may find it difficult to resist? In other words, is he in any danger of running out of time? Yeah. So I'll answer the second question first. I'll answer your questions in reverse order. You know, the more people that are defenestrated, that fall out of windows, or are sacked, you know, when you're sacked from a very high position in the Kremlin, your family suffers yes. and your network, you lose power. Yes. It, you, you go from being an apparatchik and being on the inside to being completely uh, beyond the pale and they, they, they suffer terribly. So as he goes down through the food chain, sacking, and in some cases, people dying in very suspicious circumstances, you're eventually going to arrive at a tier of people who say, well, it's going to be me in two weeks' time, so I'm going yes. to use this opportunity. So he, you know, the 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 risk of Putin being ousted increases with every round yes. of uh, purge like that. And, you know, these hard men, these dictators, people like Ceausescu, <clears throat> excuse me, like Gaddafi, they always appear impenetrable and um, unassailable, but when they unravel, they unravel very, very quickly. The Ceausescu appearance on the balcony with his wife, <laughs> uh, when, which was on the day of his downfall, he thought he was going to be acclaimed, mm. and he didn't realize the people were screaming for his head. And, and, and I'd, heard, I'd heard at the outset of this conflict that apparently, well, it's rumored that Putin was obsessed with the footage of Gaddafi's really? final, final moments, that he kept yeah. this and would play it over and over again. You know, Gaddafi found in a culvert pulled out of it and then beaten and, and, and yes, essentially course. executed yeah. or murdered and his and his bloody body displayed on the bonnet of a truck and people waving his pistol around. And apparently uh, Putin saw how NATO uh, accelerated that process in, in Libya and feared that one day something like that might be used to, to, to yes. get at him. And uh, so th the other question was about um, Yeah, the, if Zelensky gets out of you know, gets out of uh, control and says to everybody, we've got to win this and we're taking everything back. He, he's, if nothing, he's a realist. And yes, we don't know, right. we don't know what the Ukrainian losses are. But if there's 50,000 Russian dead, tens of, th we can be certain that tens of thousands of yes. Ukrainian soldiers have been killed and they're suffering. Uh, but, it, you know, so there's a limit to the exploitation of your national asset in that way. Yes. His troops have been fighting now for nine months. They'll be approaching exhaustion as winter sets in. And who's who's going to win this? You know, battles on the ground will be win, won by the side that has the most people and the most stuff and equipment in the right yep. place at the right time. It's it, This is going to be a war of endurance now. Who can, toler who can suffer the most and, and right. sustain the most? And there's that's finite for for certainly for for Ukraine because of the nature of it as a democracy, I think the Russians could probably continue, 
and pour all the, their young boys into this meat grinder. And I feel very sorry for Russian soldiers and for Ukrainian soldiers that are caught up in this and for the civilians. So it has to come to an end. Um, but if Zelensky can negotiate from a position of strength, ultimately what I'd see, what I would hope is that your, Ukraine will be brought very quickly into the European Union. There'll be a massive investment program in rebuilding Ukraine. Yes. It'll become a successful, vibrant economy. And that, um, as a message to Russia, is more powerful than any missile or any piece of technology that you could supply in the field. Okay, Senator Tom Clonan, thank you very much for joining us on the stand. We're extremely grateful to you for that analysis. Um, and we're grateful to all of you for listening, of course. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.